Well, please turn in your Bible to John chapter 7. John chapter 7 and John chapter 8 are chapters of controversy and we've been looking at them. I cherry-picked some of the best bits and realized that I need to backtrack just to fill in some of the gaps and that's what we're going to do today. We're backtracking into John chapter 7. And I want us to think about Jesus and controversy. And you might, I don't know what everybody's thoughts about Jesus are. You might think he's a good person. You might actually think he's a bad person. You might think it is, would be nice to believe in Jesus, but actually it's an impossible thing. Or you might say it would be nice to believe in Jesus, but, well, but, but all sorts of things. But you might say Jesus is ridiculously old and out of date. You might say that Jesus is, and what he represents is intolerant and bigoted. Interesting word, bigoted. Never quite sure what it means, except that people don't like you if you're bigoted. I looked it up on Wikipedia, so this must be true. It says, somebody who, through prejudice, has fear, distrust, hatred, contempt, or intolerance for someone based on their ethnicity, religion, national origin, gender, sexual orientation, disability, socio-economic status. I think that was the end of the list. Now you know that's what bigoted means. It means somebody who has prejudice and fear, distrust, hatred, contempt, intolerance. There we are. So you might say Jesus is those things that in, he shows contempt, hatred, intolerance towards people. You might think that. You might think that he's unscientific, so that it's just a betrayal of modern knowledge to believe in Jesus. You might go a little bit further to think about his followers, the church, and you might say that the church is hypocritical. You might have met some people who say they were Christians and you think, well, if Christians are like that, I don't think much of Jesus. Wouldn't put, I wouldn't say that that doesn't happen. You might say that the church is middle class and therefore you're not interested. Or you might say that the church is full of gullible and fanatical people, so you're not interested for that reason. Two different reasons, almost contradictory perhaps, but uh, you might say you're against the, the church for that reason. Interestingly, if you look for a, a review of Calvary Evangelical Church on Google, you'll find it has been reviewed by somebody who came in uh, to vote and they said it's a very nice building. He says it's evangelical. You can tell that it's a, 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 an ongoing evangelical church. And he says, and if you meet the people there, the light in their eyes is not cataracts, it's Jesus. Now, why is it? So, <laughs> that's what it says. Uh, uh, how he would come to that conclusion, I don't know. I think he's saying that we're gullible and fanatical. But anyway, he says it's a nice building. If you are Muslim, and you might say, well, I can't believe in Jesus because he didn't really die. And all those Christians have got it completely wrong. All sorts of reasons why Jesus might be 
difficult for you to believe in. And all I want to say this morning, well, actually, I want to say more than this, but I can at least say this, it's not new. Not new. There have been objections to Jesus from the word go. And we're going to look at some of those objections this morning, and we'll find that the objections that crop up actually recorded in the Bible are also in a measure contradictory. And they're also in a measure based on ignorance. And some of the objections are irrational, no evidence for them. Some of the objections are nonsensical if you actually take them out and look at them. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at some of these objections to Jesus this morning. Okay. Let me give you an overview of what happens in John chapter 7. Personally, I find it a little bit of a difficult chapter to keep tabs on. But I can. Uh, this is the sort of thing that's been happening. Jesus was in Galilee at the beginning of John chapter 7. And he makes his way down to Jerusalem to the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a very important, very important festival in the Jewish calendar. And interestingly, he gets criticized for not going, and then he gets criticized for going. So you see the sort of situation that's described there. He gets criticized for being too cautious, and he gets criticized for his timing. Well, when he gets to Jerusalem, there are a number of people that he meets up with. So in John chapter 7, verse 25, he meets the crowd, and some of the crowd are from Jerusalem. They're not all from Jerusalem, because lots of people have come as pilgrims. So that's perhaps one of the reasons why you get divided opinions. Some of them are locals, some of them are incomers, but there's definitely a crowd. And in uh, verse 12, John chapter 7, verse 12, people are talking to one another about Jesus. And some of them say he's a good man. That's what they say in verse 12. But not everybody agrees. Some people say, in verse 12 again, no, he deceives the people. He's pushing people out of course. He's pushing them off course. And in that discussion, there's an atmosphere of fear. Verse 13, no one would say anything public about him for fear of the Jews. So presumably, the Jews are not the same as the crowd. Maybe it's shorthand for the Jewish leadership. So in order to distinguish them, I've drawn some little men with hats. I don't know why I did that, but it's just a good way of distinguishing the leaders. And the leaders have their thoughts and objections so in verse 15 they uh, they sort of sneer at Jesus about his academic record verse 15 the Jews were amazed and asked how did this man get such learning without having studied so they're sort of saying he hasn't got a PhD he hasn't been to the through a theological school hasn't been to Oak Hill uh, any of these places so the question about his, his academic respectability how can he talk without having studied the Jewish leaders also have in mind the Jewish heritage 
And so this is not actually them that says this, but Jesus refers back to them about Moses, verse 22. Moses gave you circumcision. And he, uh, Jesus refers to their law, verse 23. A child can be sacrificed on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken. And the, the Jewish leaders were very keen on Moses, who, as we know, was in some ways the founder of the Jewish religion and there is within the Jewish leadership anger which Jesus refers to in verse 23 why are you angry with me and there is an intention of murder so some of the people say in verse 25 isn't this the man they're trying to kill and then some people say no they're not trying to kill him and other people say yes they are trying to kill him so that's what's going on and in verse 32 some minions are sent to arrest Jesus verse 32 the Pharisees who are part of the leadership the Jewish leadership heard the crowd whispering such things about him then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him so off they go to arrest Jesus and meanwhile Jesus speaks about if you're thirsty come to me and drink and at some time later the guards come back empty handed verse 45 the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who said why haven't you brought Jesus back what's the matter with you and they give their reply so that's the sort of thing that's going on in John chapter 7 and I'd like to focus on verses 40 to 52 how are the crowd thinking what would you be thinking if you were there what sort of things are going on well in verse 31 here's one of the things that the crowd are saying they're saying uh, it says many in the crowd put their faith in him they said when the Christ comes will he do more miraculous signs than this man so I put a list on the screen of some of these factors and one of them is definitely the signs the miracles that Jesus did uh, signs is a better translation than miraculous signs the huge things that Jesus did nobody says he didn't do them they saw them and the question is what do they mean and the crowd are saying the things that he did the power of them the quantity of them he must be the Christ so there's the signs in verse 40 when Jesus has said on the last and greatest day of the feast if anyone is thirsty let him come to me and drink when Jesus has said that in verse 40 on hearing his words some of the people said he's the prophet so notice it's not seeing the signs it's hearing the words when they heard the things he said and the way that he said them and then in verse 41 others said he is the Christ and the debate goes on bringing in the matter of the fact that he's from up north from Galilee okay so that's 
let's take the, let's deal with that one at a time so first of all he's proposed as prophet number one he's proposed as prophet so I'm taking that from verse 40 some of the people said truly this man is the prophet now what did, what did they mean like that what did they mean by that what did they mean by that oh dear I haven't put down the bible reference that's silly of me I think it's Deuteronomy 18 it is so what did they mean by the prophet well I can tell you what they meant they were thinking about an ancient promise of God which goes back to Moses so thousands of years before it's, it's Deuteronomy 18 and verse 17 where the Lord says uh, what they say is good I will raise up for them a prophet like you Moses from among their brothers I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command them if anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name I myself will call him to account so it's a very important figure of the prophet who follows on from Moses now, I, it seems to me that that had several fulfillments we have through the story of Israel going on through history different prophets at different times that called the people back to the covenant that had been made with Moses and if you like they are covenant policemen then they're not particularly saying anything new but they're drawing out from what Moses has already said about God's promise to his people and they call people back to that and they point forward what you can expect from that so these are the prophets and the people are saying Jesus is the prophet do you notice a difference between what I wrote and what they said because they're not saying Jesus is a prophet notice that little word the they're saying Jesus is the prophet here's another incident in the life of Jesus on the what's called the mountain of transfiguration it's in Mark chapter 9 and this is an incident in the, in the story of Jesus he went up onto a high mountain he took some of his disciples with him and there was a, this amazing remarkable incident where he seemed to sort of shine like the sun and his clothes shone like the sun and it seemed as though the power of another world had temporarily broken through into this world as if the, the obscure glass between our world and the next world was suddenly taken taken away and you've got the full force of the light of who Jesus is shining through and another part of the curiousness of this was that two other figures appeared one of them was Moses whom we just referred to and one of them was Elijah does anybody know what sort of person Elijah was he was a he was a prophet and if you like these two then stand for Moses the, the one through whom 
the covenant started and Elijah, one of the great prophets. And so you have Jesus and Moses and Elijah and a voice comes from heaven and says about Jesus, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Very significant words. There's Moses who wrote a lot of the Bible. There's Elijah who I think stands for the whole tradition of prophets. And do you think the voice from heaven might say, there's your Bible, listen to Moses, listen to Elijah, that's what you need to do. But no, the voice from heaven says, there's Moses, there's Elijah, but here's Jesus. Listen to him. He's not a prophet, but he's the prophet about whom all the others spoke. He's not part of the route, he's the destination. He's not one among many. He's the great towering figure. Surely, truly, he is the prophet. As the voice from heaven comes, here's Jesus. Listen to him. Jesus then is proposed as prophet. And it fits in with uh, a couple of things that were said. Uh, first of all, in, at the beginning of John's gospel, when Jesus is introduced in this way, no one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. No one has ever seen God, but Jesus, who comes from who comes from God, who is who has been eternally in communion with his father, uh, face to face with the father forever, Jesus has come down and made him known. No wonder the voice from heaven said, he's the one who knows, listen to him. And the people were right when they proposed Jesus as the prophet. And the guards, did you remember when the guards come back from trying to arrest Jesus, they say, we'll look at this again in a moment, no one ever spoke like this man. We were just knocked out listening to him. We, we couldn't do anything other than be so totally impressed by the words of Jesus. So he's proposed as prophet and I ask the question, shall we listen to him? Do I ask the question to Christians? Do you make it your business to listen to Jesus? Do we make it our business to live lives under the word of Jesus and actually taking notice of what he says? Do we do that? Or do we, are we a little bit too lazy to bother listening to Jesus? You know, Jesus is on the phone. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm a bit busy at the moment. Can't be bothered. Do we listen to him? Do we actually bother to put into practice what he says? It's a crucial, fundamental thing. It's not possible to be a Christian without having Jesus as the prophet 
whom we listen to. Shall we listen? Shall we do him the honour of listening? There's a, a temptation in the Christian life just to talk to Jesus and tell him things that we're concerned about. It would be very polite to listen to him and for him to tell us the things he's concerned about, wouldn't it? So there's my first point, that he's proposed as prophet. Here's the second point. He's commended as the Christ, and this is in the next verse. He's commended as the Christ, verse 41. So some people say he's the prophet. Others said he's the Christ. Now what does it mean by Christ? Christ comes from a Greek word. It's the equivalent of the word Messiah, which is the English attempt at a Hebrew word, and it, uh, it means anointed. Uh, that's what it means literally. In practice, the Christ is the king, because in, in the Hebrew scriptures, what you did with kings, you didn't particularly crown them, although you could crown a king, but what you certainly did was you anointed a king. I think the same thing is true in the uh, UK, what do you call it, coronation ceremony. I think there's some oil used in that, isn't there? So they're saying, he's the king. He's the king. Strange thing to say, because they've already got a king. But they're saying, no, he's the king. He's the king that's been foretold in the Bible. Let's have a look at some of that foretelling. Psalm 2, which we sang right at the beginning, is, if you like, Messiah's manifesto. It's a, a rather sobering document because I suppose we tend to think that Jesus ought to be nothing other than warmth, gentleness, supportiveness, non-judgmental, our friend and so on and this actually gives a, a different angle on who Messiah is this is Psalm 2 I won't read the whole thing but I point out that in verse 2 he is the object of resentment the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one so it's saying that people the people described here very fundamentally resent the claims of the Lord and the claims of the Messiah. And maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you've not got no further than that. You just feel, I really don't want this Christian stuff and I really don't want to go along with it. I would like to shake that off. I remember there's a time in my life when that was very much what I was feeling. I want to shake off anything that's to do with Christianity because it's an encumbrance, an unwelcome encumbrance, and that's what they're saying here. He's an object of resentment. And he is also the ultimate answer to the rebellion of humankind. In verse 6, the Lord sees all these rebellious people resenting his constraint on their lives, and he says, well, I've got an answer to that. And the answer is, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Don't get bogged down with the geography of it. I think he's just saying that 
the, uh, the Zion, the Holy Hill, is his headquarters, and it's saying God, uh, the, the king is put into position in, in headquarters. He's put into the position of power and authority and action and execution. And this is God's answer to humankind. What's God's answer? I've put Jesus in the place of power and the place of authority. And the psalm goes on to say that the Messiah is able to deal with humankind with lethal power. You will rule them with an iron scepter and dash them to pieces like pottery, which seems to be rather off message for Christianity, doesn't it? You'd think that Christianity ought to say something much more warm and fluffy about what Jesus thinks about the whole wide world. Actually, the Bible is very realistic. It says the Bible, the world is full of wicked, wickedness. Well, you know that, don't you, from looking on the television, reading the news. And rather than Jesus being rather fluffy and patting people on the head, he's very angry with that. And he has a rule, he has a, a power. And he says at some point, not necessarily today, but at some point that will all be sorted out. And it will be sorted out with as much force as it takes, including lethal force. There is a day when Jesus will put all wrong things right and the price will have to be paid for rebellion and enmity against God and refusal of his power and refusal of his ways. After all, he is the boss. He does own everything it's all his and if we're sitting there shaking our fists metaphorically at God it's not surprising that at some point God will say well, I'm going to sort that out that's not, that's not on that's unacceptable and he'll do it through Jesus and the point comes right at the end of the psalm where it says this being the case now's the opportunity to get right with the king to not be his enemy, to say, can we have an armistice? Look, I'm putting my weapons down. If I come out, you won't shoot at me. And that's what the psalm ends up saying. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And the king is there. The king is our greatest enemy, but he's also the solution to our problem. That he's at the moment saying, you know, my finger is not on the trigger. It is not the judgment day yet. You can come this minute. You can come. We can make peace. You come before me. It says, kiss the sun. Come and make friends with me now. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now's the opportunity to come and shelter in him. Now's the opportunity to be forgiven in him. Now's the opportunity to be welcomed despite yourself. He's currently welcoming subjects. So you're not coming and still shaking your fist at him. You're coming and saying, sorry about all that. It was completely out of order. Can I be on your side will you welcome me will you forget the past will you obliterate all that and just take me in as I am 
and Jesus says absolutely yes absolutely yes that's what Messiah does blessed are all who take refuge in him so some people are saying this is who Jesus is he's the Christ he's the king and some people are saying oh hold on hold on hold on hold on but 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 and what they're saying is here's a problem and the problem is what's written in the Bible is that the king is of the royal line and the royal line is the line of David and David's family background I've written it in there I didn't really write it in Hebrew but I wrote it in English backwards could you see where David's family home is Bethlehem so they say this can't be right there's an objection there's a problem Uh, he ought to come from Bethlehem that's David's city but we know that Jesus comes from Nazareth which is up north Jesus comes from Galilee and you see I don't know whether you've experienced this that there's some things that urge you towards Jesus and yet there's some things that get in the way as objections you say yeah but this can't be right it's not a new thing people have always had to struggle with this and this is a a particular factor in this case the Galilee factor if you like and they're saying well he ought to be royal he ought to be southern and I suppose they're saying he ought to be posh but what he actually seems to be is uncivilized northern and therefore undesirable so they say we can't believe in him because he's a Galilean can't even pronounce donkey correctly do you see what I mean it's an objection and I don't know whether you've had those sorts of objections in your mind what I want to say is that an objection like this need not necessarily it need not actually necessarily actually turn out to be true and it need not necessarily be a showstopper there may be an answer to these things or you may actually be giving the objection more weight than it really ought to have and i say that because the road to christian the road to christian discipleship and the road of christian discipleship does not mean that there's never any conflicting thoughts in our minds uh, but those need to be overcome and in this case of course they we can see how they ought to be overcome but please notice at this particular moment the objection is a combination of half understood theology snobbery geography bigotry and ignorance he can't be the messiah they're saying he can't be the messiah partly based on misunderstood theology snobbery geography bigotry and ignorance that's what that's what that objection comes from and is there an answer to it well there is of course they didn't yet know this we know that Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem wasn't he all the Christmas carols keep on telling us that we didn't didn't realize that it was so significant but it is Uh, hark the herald angels no what's the one Christ is born in Bethlehem what comes before that one 
or whatever it is that comes before that. Yes, thank you very much. He was born in Bethlehem, so they need to have been stuck on that point. Uh, he was a temporary refugee and went to Egypt, which also turns out to be significant, and he settled in Nazareth in the end. So here they were, uh, he was commended as the Christ, but people found objections. And uh, what I want to say about this is, maybe you're struggling, not, perhaps not over this particular issue, but over something like it, and say that faith, what is the nature of faith? Faith is based on evidence. Now Richard Dawkins says that faith is when you believe and there's no evidence. I don't think he has any evidence to say that, but he does say it anyway. Faith is based on evidence, but there will sometimes be little bits of grit in that nice system. Don't be put off by the little bits of grit on something that you know is basically uh, going the right direction. Be prepared to trust. I'm not saying believe things that you know aren't true. Faith is based on evidence, but there's often comes up little counter examples. For example, you're thinking the Lord is leading me in such and such a direction. And then you can see the Lord providing for and then something comes up which seems to go contrary to that. And you think, oh, maybe I've got it all wrong. Well, maybe you have but not necessarily. If you can know you can trust the Lord, you can trust the Lord in this particular challenging issue that comes up that is temporarily unresolved. You know, it might be for you a Galilee factor. But I want to say, keep trusting the Lord. Keep trusting the Lord. In fact, there's a whole set of teaching in the Bible which says that the Lord as he watches over us and plans our lives, sometimes deliberately allows contrary things to come in. He calls it discipline. Uh, things that perhaps make us frustrated or make us downhearted or whatever. But the message is that God uses those things for good and we're to keep trusting him. And I just put it as a second thought I wonder what Galilee what Galilee issues people stumble over at the moment quite unnecessarily this Galilee thing they shouldn't have they shouldn't have put, been put off believing over this matter let's come to the third thing he was proposed as a prophet and commended as the Christ alliteration there so I thought I'd do some more alliteration but in the, the last bit he's abandoned through arrogance verses 45 to 52 so the the guards come back and the Jewish leaders the chief priests and the Pharisees said we sent you off several verses ago to go and arrest Jesus we wondered what had happened to you and now you've come back empty-handed. What's, what's on earth going on? And they say, we had a close encounter with Jesus. No one ever spoke the way this man does. It's a remarkable thing to say, isn't it? I mean, they, they didn't go out as his fan club. They've 
change their minds and this is what they come back and this is apparently a, their excuse for being sent to arrest somebody and not doing it the way he spoke no one ever spoke the way this man does how do you expect us to arrest somebody like this they'd had a close encounter with Jesus maybe you know people who've had a close encounter with Jesus I hope you don't react to it the way that the, these uh, Pharisees reacted to the guards because they say you idiots you mean he has deceived you also say the Pharisees he's a deceiver he's deceived you as well and the, the, the guards might be saying well no we heard him and no one ever spoke like him and the Pharisees say oh you stupid idiots you're deceived you're deceived you've been taken in unlike us and then notice what they say has any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him no we don't believe so it can't be true it's very do you, do you get the sense of the irony of that and the conceit of it we're you know we're the people who know we don't believe so it can't be true <laughs> bit like it's almost like the BBC isn't it uh, you know Jeremy Paxman doesn't believe so it can't so Christianity can't be true uh, none of the people on question time believe so it can't be true there's sort of arrogance about it isn't there uh, although some people believe they're the crowd notice, notice see what the, the leaders say about the crowd uh, oh the crowd oh well that lot that lot uh, this, they use, it uses the same word for crowd as it used before, but it's translated here as mob. That lot, oh, you know, it's the people who go shopping in London Road, that lot. They, uh, um, they, they're so ignorant. They know nothing of the law. They're ignorant and stupid, and they're inferior. In fact, as far as we're concerned, there's a curse on them. We wouldn't, you know, those sort of people believe in Jesus. Well, it means nothing, they're just so stupid. I suppose the Pharisees would include us in that, wouldn't they? They believe, but they must be stupid. There's a certain arrogance and conceit there. Please don't get caught up in that. Please don't look down your nose at Christians simply because of some snobbery or prejudice or something like that oh these Christians they're all homophobic gullible with light shining out of their eyes well are they? have you actually talked to any of them? have you thought about it? there's a, an, an arrogance and a conceit in the Pharisees well all of them except one or one that's recorded and this is he's, a, he's actually been to theological college he's uh, respectable uh, he probably knows which knife and fork to use when he goes to a posh dinner and so on this is called Nicodemus verse 50 Nicodemus who had gone to Jesus earlier and was one of their own number he was one of their own number and he says well hold on a minute we're supposed to be Jewish leaders we have a certain code we have the law of Moses we're supposed to be upholding that aren't we and doesn't our own law say 
you don't make judgments like that. You don't just write people off in this rather conceited, snobbish way without actually listening to them. Have we done that? That's what he says. Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? Have we done that? Have, I know that we sent temple guards to arrest him, but have we actually sat and listened carefully to what he said? Have we found it out firsthand, or have we just written him off because we know that he's stupid? We know that he's a deceiver. So that's what Nicodemus says. And look at the reply that he gets. Nicodemus, you're from up north as well, aren't you? You're a, you're a Galilean too. Are you from Galilee? Are you one of those idiots who can't even talk properly? And they do go back to a half understanding of scripture, don't they? They say, look and find a prophet does not come out of Galilee. So we never get them any further than this. They got stuck on that bit of grit. It's, it's ignorance because they don't know that Jesus has been born in Bethlehem. But it's for them, they can't get any further than that. It's sad, isn't it? But my heading was, for them, he's abandoned through arrogance. And that's where we have to leave them. Jesus is going on to say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He is in the business of bringing truth to open eyes so if you're stuck don't abandon Jesus keep on because he is able to shine through into confusion and muddle and darkness I am the light of the world whoever follows me will not walk around in confusion and uncertainty and darkness but will have the light of life says Jesus and he's going to say in chapter 8, verse 28, the clearest light that you can look at whereby you will not be uncertain, but you will know the clearest light comes from the cross. And in chapter 8, verse 28, Jesus is going to go on and say, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, that means lifted up on the cross, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. He says, that's the clearest place. Look at what I will do, where the place I'm at on the cross. When you see that, you will know. I would imagine there's a good number of people in this room who would say, I know exactly what that means my clearest sense of who God is and what it is to know God comes to me as I consider Jesus dying on the cross. It all focuses there, that he should love me, that he should give himself for me, that he should die on the cross for me, that he should forgive my sins. It's all focused there. And as I look again and again at that place, I know, I know God I know what he's done for me I know that I belong to him I'm not wandering around in darkness but I have the light of life the clearest proof is by looking at the cross 
I'm sorry we have to leave the Jewish leaders there and we leave the crowd in a degree of confusion as well but perhaps not all of us are confused perhaps some of us can say I know I've looked I've trusted <laughs>